study of Hebrews. Uh, in the past few weeks of our study, we've been looking uh, through this sort of mini-series, really, throughout the book that the writer has been engaging in. Remember, the first section of Hebrews is going to be talking about this right here. He's going to be talking about the heroes of the Old Testament. And he's going to be talking about how Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than the high priesthood. And so that was the first section of the book of Hebrews. And the second section of the book of Hebrews is going to be covering the theological comparisons. And that really begins in chapter 8, if you'll remember, as he's talking about Jesus providing and giving us a better covenant in the New Testament than the Old. Then in chapter 9, he continues and talks about Jesus gives a better sanctuary. He compares the two that we find in the Bible. And in chapter 10, if you'll remember, he talks about Jesus giving us a better sacrifice and comparing the Old Testament sacrifice to that that we find in the New. And then finally last week, we talked about chapter 11, how Jesus inspires a better faith within each of us. We compared the, the, the followers of faith from the past and how exponentially more Jesus expects a greater faith within us. So in chapter 8, remember, we talked about the what. In chapter 9, we talked about the where. In chapter 10, we talked about the how. And then last week, we talked about the why. Why we need to have better faith. Well, we need to have better faith because we've been given the better covenant. We've been given the better sanctuary. We've been given the better sacrifice. And so this whole book, remember, we've said over and over again throughout our study, was written to both convict and convince the readers. It was meant to convict those Christians that had come out of Judaism that they had made the right decision. It was also written to convince those first century Jews that had not yet left Judaism to do so. Because every single facet of Christianity screams from the mountaintops that Jesus is better, that Jesus is superior, that Jesus is greater than anyone or anything found in the Old Testament. So we discuss this fundamental knowledge that should launch us into a deeper and greater faith than anyone listed in chapter 11 in the Old Testament. Because we live in the reality of Christ, they simply lived with the promise of Christ. Tonight the writer is going to be letting them know that this stronger faith, this deeper faith that we just talked about, well, it's going to require something even greater from us. It's going to require something from us even more that was required from those of old. It's going to require one thing that doesn't come easy to everyone. It may seem like everything is easier in the New Testament, right? We've talked about how great it is to be a Christian. We've give, been given the greater covenant, the greater sacrifice, the greater sanctuary. We've been given the abundant life through Christ, right? So it may seem that we've been given such this great life, and we have. But tonight we're going to be talking about something that is required from us. 
You look back at the Old Testament, yeah, guess what? We don't have to do the ceremonial sacrifices that they did. We don't have to live in the manner that they did. But you are going to have to have what we're going to call tonight a better discipline. As Christians in the New Testament, we have to have a better discipline. And Jesus, through the writer of Hebrews, is going to challenge us. He's inspiring us to have a better discipline. Now, if we're going to look at all these blessings from Christ, through Christ, in Christ... And we're going to walk away with a better faith as a result of it in chapter 11. If we're going to do that, we're going to have to maintain a better discipline. And without this discipline, our faith will not be enough. Without discipline, our faith is not going to be enough. Without discipline, faith falters. You know, discipline is really the glue that holds our faith and our obedience together. Right in the middle of faith and obedience is discipline. It is the mortar that holds the bricks of our foundation together. Right there in the middle of our foundation is this thing called discipline. And if we don't have discipline, then the foundation fails. If we don't have discipline, then there is no glue holding our faith next to our obedience. And one of them is going to fall, whether that be our faith or our obedience. It is literally the cement of our Christianity, discipline. Without discipline, it is possible to have faith, but it is not possible to maintain works. You can have faith with no discipline, but you cannot have obedience without discipline. Discipline is required to truly work our faith alongside of our obedience. And as we discussed last week, what was the thing that made these individuals in chapter 11 faithful? Well, it was the fact that they acted and they obeyed as a result of their faith. So if we're going to be found pleasing to God, if we're going to believe to the salvation of the soul, chapter 10, the last verse of chapter 10, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to have discipline. Because as we look at chapter 11, guess what it took? It took discipline. It took discipline to build the ark to the exact specifications that God gave Noah, didn't it? It took discipline for him to follow those instructions to the very exact point. Hey, you got two windows, you're going to drown. You only got one window. That takes discipline. God, I want to breathe a little better. Let me put a second window. Well, bye-bye humanity. It takes discipline to do what Noah did. It took discipline for Abraham to grab his son and go up a mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. It took discipline to do that. It also took discipline for Moses to lead the Israelites throughout the wilderness to the promised land, all throughout the different things he did and set up to God's specifications with the tabernacle and all the different ceremonial things they had to do. It took discipline. For every single one of these people listed in Hebrews 11, in the same way it requires a better faith than those in Hebrews 11 from us, it requires even a better discipline for us as Christians. Discipline is what will be required. 
for those people who had a lesser faith than us. So how much more then should it be for us who have a greater faith in Jesus? And chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews is all about this idea, discipline. Discipline. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go ahead and begin one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. We've already alluded to this before in our study. It says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, looking unto Jesus. You know, when it comes to this entire book of Hebrews, there may not be a more famous passage in all the whole book than this one. It's got to be in the top three, along with, you know, uh, the Bible being sharper than than two-edged sword and all the other verses you can think of that we've covered thus far. This has got to be in the top. Why? Because it gives us the purpose behind which this whole book was written. Looking unto Jesus. I want to look at this passage in the scope of our entire study thus far. This passage right here really begins the end of Hebrews. He's made all of his pitches. He's made all of his arguments as to why Jesus is better. And this begins the end, the concluding argument, this closing argument, for our book of Hebrews. He's already dethroned all of the Old Testament heroes when it compares to Jesus in the first section of Hebrews. He's exalted the New Testament theological principles in comparison to the Old in the second section of Hebrews. And it has all led to this moment in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 when he tells us, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us do something about it. What are we to do about it? Let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside every sin. Let us run with endurance. Let us look unto Jesus. Those are the four things he tells us we have to do as a result of our study thus far. Let us lay aside the weight. Let us lay aside the sin. Let us look unto Jesus. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We must look unto Jesus in order to lay aside that weight. If you don't look unto Jesus, you cannot lay aside your sin. You cannot run with endurance. In order to do that, we have to look unto Jesus. And really, as we've already said, looking unto Jesus is what we've been doing this entire study. The writer of Hebrews has forced us to look unto Jesus from the very first class. Looking unto Jesus is what we've been doing. There could potentially be no better summary verse of the whole book of Hebrews in this passage. The writer like I said, has done this since the very beginning. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The very first words of this book. 
God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the worlds. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. What He's done is, hey, you know those prophets you like to read from? Well, take a moment to look at Jesus. You know those angels you're mesmerized by? Well, take a moment to look at Jesus. You know Moses, you know Joshua, you know Aaron, you know the high priesthood, you know the covenant, the sanctuary, the sacrifice. Well, take a moment and look at Jesus. Why? Well, because it, says, it tells us that He is the author. He is the finisher of our faith. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus is the only way we're going to be able to run this race with endurance. Endurance, when we think about our study tonight, is another way of saying discipline. Run your race, race your race. Oh man, that was a bad one. I feel like Jay. Run your race. Run your race. That's it. Run your race with endurance. With discipline. Discipline is what it will take to complete this race. And that discipline is only going to come through our focus on Jesus. The text continues in verses 3 through 6. It says, For consider Him, for consider Him, Jesus, who endures such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 6. The writer is really starting to show how Jesus gives us the ultimate example of discipline. The life of Jesus shows us no better example of discipline. For consider Him. You want to talk about running a race with endurance? Who did that? Who ran their race with endurance? Who ran their race with discipline? Well, that would be Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despised the shame. Jesus is who we should consider. Why? Because He did all of that. He also endured such hostility from sinners, the verse says. And he tells us that we need to consider Jesus before we become weary in our souls. Basically, his audience had suffered some sort of persecution, but they had not received persecution to the point of bloodshed, it says. You have not resisted it to the point of blood, it says. Well, most scholars are saying this meant martyrdom. You have not received persecution to the point of martyrdom. Basically, they haven't lost their life for Jesus yet. 
And he's not saying that, listen, you need to lose your life for Jesus or you're not a good Christian. You need to be a martyr or you're not a good Christian. No, he's not saying that. But he is questioning whether they would be willing to. He's questioning, are you willing to lose your life for Jesus? Are you willing to resist to the point of bloodshed? Are you willing to deal with persecution to the point of death? He's not questioning whether they'd be willing to suffer persecution they already have. He's asking, are you willing to be martyrs for the cause of Christ? And I think he's saying, you know what, I don't think you are. I don't think you are willing to do this for Christ. Why? Because you simply don't have the discipline to. How do we know he thinks that of them? Well, he says, you have forgotten the exhortation of the Lord. You have forgotten the exhortation from the Lord. And this exhortation that says that they must endure hardships, chastening, and they must endure it as if they're receiving that chastening and that hardship from the Lord, that discipline from the Lord. The passage continues in verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us, as seemed best to them, but He for our profit, that we may be partakers of His holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 7-11. What a difficult passage. The section that we just read can be really confusing if you don't understand what the writer is saying. Is the writer, in fact, saying that God is the one who persecutes us? Is he saying that God is the one who brings the pain and suffering upon us? No. That's what it sounds like. But what he's actually saying is that if we look at our pain and suffering and persecution as an opportunity, instead of becoming martyrs, you know, in the metaphorical sense, if we look at our persecution as an opportunity to make our discipline in the Lord stronger, then we can benefit from the persecution. Just as James said, count it all joy when you find yourself in various trials. We need to look at our persecution and this suffering as an opportunity to make ourselves more disciplined more so than an opportunity to complain. He says, if we endure chastening, then what? Then you are God's sons. Basically, he's saying, if you're not enduring this chastening, then you're not my son. He says, you are illegitimate. You are illegitimate, it says. 
So if you want to be a child of God, you're going to have to endure this chastening from the world. You're going to have to endure this persecution and these hardships. And if you do, you will be God's son. And then he says, hey, you ever had an earthly father? Did that earthly father ever discipline you? Well, he did it because he did it for your well-being. My parents are listening at home, and you better believe my dad disciplined me. My dad carried our family with an iron fist, I'm telling you. And I needed every bit of it. Should have gotten more, but I talked my way out of it sometimes. He says, have you ever had an earthly father? That earthly father disciplined you. As he said, I think it's hilarious. He says, they chastened us as seemed best to them. You know, sometimes maybe it wasn't the best thing, our earthly father, sometimes. I think that's funny. They, they chastened us as seemed best to them. Don't laugh too hard, Noah. Your dad's in this room. They chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. I love what he says next. No chastening seems to be joyful. It's not joyful in the present. It's not fun to be disciplined. It's not, in, it's not something you look forward to. But in the end, it reaps a field of production and righteousness, this peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by discipline. You know what? It takes something to get discipline. It takes disciplining. Without disciplining, you're not going to get discipline. And that's exactly what he's talking about. If we are to be partakers of his holiness, then we have to endure chastening. That at first gives us no joy, but at the end gives us fruit. But only those who have been trained and chastened can truly walk with this fruit of discipline in their life. The text continues. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up case trouble, cause trouble, and by this many have become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane Profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Verses 12 through 17. You know, the writer is saying that you can allow the discipline of the Lord to do some, this next following list of things. You can either allow, verse 5, to make the discipline of the Lord, you can make it despise. You can despise the discipline of the Lord. Verse 5. Also, verse 5, you can make the discipline of the Lord, you can just disregard, dis, dis, be discouraged by it. You can despise it, you can be discouraged by it. Verse 11, it can make you bitter. 
or verses 12 through 13, it can make you better. You can either allow the discipline from the Lord to make you despised, to make you discouraged, to make you bitter, or to make you better. There is no other options. We've got to make the discipline from the Lord make us better, not make us bitter. Notice what he says about God's grace in this passage. He tells us you can fall short of it. You can fall short of God's grace. Well, that's not popular. That's not popular to talk about. There are some who are going to fall short of God's grace. Is this saying that God's grace is not enough? Is this saying that God's grace has failed? No. Absolutely not. God's grace cannot fail, but we can fail in taking advantage of God's grace. God's grace didn't fail. If we missed out and fell short of it, it was our fault. The text continues, If we allow bitterness and poor judgment, really those are the two responses to this discipline, bitterness and poor judgment to be our response to the persecution, to the chastening, to the discipline that we're receiving, if we allow it to lead to that, then we'll be no different than Esau, it says. Esau, who was a profane person, who saw the great blessing that he had been given, this birthright, and he sold it for just a bit of relief. He just wanted a bit of relief. So he sold his very birthright. This is a warning. A warning for his readers to don't make the same mistake Esau made. Don't look at all the blessings that you've been given and give it up at the first sign of persecution. At the first sign of uncomfortable. I'm out. Don't be like Esau. Instead, face your hardship by relinquishing all other things for the cause of Christ. I mean, that's exactly what Esau did. Instead of facing his hardship, he relinquished his birthright. He relinquished it. He gave it up. And as a Christian and a follower of Christ, we have got to hold on to our birthright with all that we have. And guess what it takes? It takes discipline. It takes discipline to maintain that faith and obedience. Because if we don't, if we give this birthright that we've been given in Christ, if we give it up, there is no more blessings for us. If we look at our life and understand that we have Christ, we've got the better covenant, the better sanctuary, the better sacrifice, and we say, we're giving it up, like Esau did his birthright, then there's nothing else for us. We don't have that sanctuary, that covenant, that sacrifice anymore. There is nothing left for us but God's judgment. And it will be because we didn't have discipline to maintain the better faith we just talked about last week. The text continues in verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the words should not be spoken of them any, to them anymore. 
for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so, much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Whoa. That's a lot. What's going on here? This is a very deep passage. What he's doing is he's comparing Mount Zion to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is this physical mountain, and Mount Zion is more of this spiritual mountain. And he's comparing the two. You remember Mount Sinai, right? You go back to the Old Testament, you remember Mount Sinai when he was receiving the law, what happened to it? It was engulfed in flame, it was engulfed in clouds, it was a terrible sight. It scared the living daylights out of the Israelites. God told them, no one can come close to this mountain. If you come close, you will die. In fact, none of your animals can come close to it. If one of your animals comes close to it, it shall be stoned or shall be shot with an arrow. This was a terrible, terrifying sight. In fact, Moses said, I am deeply scared and afraid. I'm trembling, he says. Compare that to Mount Zion. You got the Mount Sinai and you got the Mount Zion. Well, Mount Zion allowed then the, the redeemed and the saved to graciously be invited to the very presence of God. That's what happens in the New Testament church. We talked about through the veil, we're able to come into the most holy place and be in the very presence of God. You see, that's not what happened in Mount Sinai in the Old Testament. You couldn't get close to God. But here again we're seeing in the New, you can. This Mount Zion would be a reference really to Jerusalem, where Jesus died and the church was instituted. How do I know that? Well, he says, to the assembly and church of the firstborn. The text continues. Verse 25 to 29, it says, See that you do not refuse him who speaks, for if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of these things that are being shaken as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are not receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, for by which we may serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Verses 25 through 29. You know, he says it's one thing for you to reject the voice that came down on Mount Sinai. 
You, you rejected this voice, this God, this Jehovah that spoke at Mount Sinai. You were terrified, but yet at the end, you still rejected it. Well, he's saying you're not going to reject the voice that comes down from heaven. It is the same voice, but it's coming from a different place. It's no longer Mount Sinai. It is Mount Zion. This voice that's coming down from heaven. How much more shall we escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, the text says. If you reject this voice that is speaking from heaven, there's nothing left for you but judgment. And God is the God who judges all, it says. The writer then appeals to Haggai. What a deep cut. We're going to go back to Haggai as he talks about this second coming of Jesus. This prophecy from Haggai. He's saying, if you thought it was terrifying when Moses and was on the mountain in Mount Sinai and, and all the, 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 the terrifying and trembling things that happened at Mount Sinai, well, if you thought that was terrifying, you just wait till the second coming of Jesus. If you don't have Jesus at the time of the second coming, you better believe that's going to be terrifying. It's going to be all the more terrifying if you've rejected Jesus when the time comes for the second coming. But notice, the text says there are those who will not be shaken. Who cannot be shaken? Who is that? Well, that's the church. The church cannot be shaken at the time of the second coming. Why? Because the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16 and verse 18. And then here in Hebrews 12, it cannot be shaken. And because of this, the church must serve, it says in verse 28. The ESV and other translations say, must worship. The church must serve, it must worship Him in an acceptable manner. Boy, how about all those that just throw that out the window? This is what helps me praise God better. This instrument and all these things that you don't want me to do, it just helps me praise God better. The church must serve and worship Him in an acceptable manner. We must serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, it says. Why? You know, I would think long and hard before I ever changed anything about worship. You know why? What verse 29 says. For our God is a consuming fire. Well, that'll make you think twice, wouldn't it? It should. That's exactly why the writer says it. He's saying, listen, God, Jehovah God, is still the same God of Sinai. The same God who engulfed the mountain of Sinai in fire and clouds and thunder and lightning. The same God is the God of Zion. The God that we serve. 
and he should and must be looked at with the same reverence and the same fear, godly fear, that they looked at him back in Sinai. For our God is a consuming fire. Just because God offers grace, love, and Jesus does not mean that he should not be feared and respected with the same weight he was in the Old Testament. In fact, he should be feared and respected exponentially greater from us. To worship God in an acceptable manner, guess what it requires? Discipline. It requires discipline to continue with the pattern revealed in God's Word. It doesn't require discipline to just throw a bunch of whatever the kitchen sink has at worship. Hey, you got a new idea? Let's do it. This doesn't take discipline. It takes discipline to continue to restore the church of God's intent. So let's look at some application from this chapter of God's Word. As we try to look to this text for application, let's think about the overarching, the overarching message that we've been trying to see and trying to put across and that the writer's saying tonight. If you want to keep your faith in the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution and suffering and chastening in 2020, if you're going to try to maintain and keep your faith in all the midst of this, you're going to have to have discipline. If you want the foundation to be glued together with that mortar, that cement, it's got to be in the middle of your faith and your obedience. If you don't have discipline, it's all coming down. It takes discipline. Discipline is the one thing that we don't talk about enough in the church. In my opinion, we don't want to talk about it. Why? Because it's not fun to talk about. It's not fun to talk about discipline. We're... we're, we're, we're uh, forced to hate discipline. We're taught to hate discipline. At school, you got to go to the principal's office. I don't like that, so I hate discipline for the rest of my life. I mess up at home. My dad spanks me. I hate discipline the rest of my life. I do something I shouldn't, say something I shouldn't at work. My boss comes in and disciplines me. I don't like that, so I hate discipline. That's how we're taught and conditioned to feel about discipline. But that's not how it should be in the church. You know, we love to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, and we love to sing the song and the kids love it. We love to talk about love. Jesus loves me, right? It's fun. Feels good. We love to talk about grace. 
His grace reaches me deeper than the oceans. You know, we should definitely sing all of these songs. All, every single one of these songs is true, it's accurate. We should and, and we will continue to sing them. But when was the last time you heard a song about discipline? I was disciplined today. I was dis No, you don't hear that one. You don't want to hear that one. You don't want to sing that one. It's not fun. It doesn't feel good. But in the church, we have got to be a people of discipline. Discipline is not something we want to talk about. It's not something we like to experience. It's not something we look forward to. It's not something we enjoy. But it is crucial to the overall spiritual health of a Christian. You know, the Bible tells us that parents are, in, are to be engaging in discipline. I can't tell you how many times I had to read the verse out loud before my father. Spare the rod, spoil the child. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs. Right? Parents are to engage in discipline. Who else is to engage in discipline? The elders are supposed to engage in discipline. Church discipline. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, I command you that you withdraw from those who walk disorderly. The church is to engage in discipline. Well, tonight we've learned that individuals are to engage in personal discipline by allowing their faith and their obedience to be glued together, to be bonded together by their discipline. We found that in Hebrews chapter 12. It takes discipline to be a Christian. It takes discipline to get your kids all dressed up to come to worship in Bible class. It takes discipline when it's rainy outside and you're all achy. Say, I'm going to go to Bible class anyway. It takes discipline to come in here and to wear a mask. It takes discipline to listen to others who are over you, elders. It takes discipline to study your Bible. It takes discipline to pray. It takes discipline to be a Christian. Faith is not enough, and obedience won't come if there is no discipline. And that discipline is the discipline we find to endure. To endure the race that is set before us. The discipline to turn our persecution and sufferings into a positive thing. The discipline to stop looking at all the things going on around us and start looking at the one who's above us. The one who is the author. The originator of our faith. The one who is the finisher or the perfecter of our faith. The one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. To look at the one who offers the better covenant, the better sanctuary, the better sacrifice, the better faith, and yes, the better discipline. 
But before we can do any of this, we're going to have to look at ourselves. We've got to do two things. We've got to decide to lay aside the weight. To lay aside the sin. We're going to have to decide to look to Jesus. Even if that sin is the sin that so easily entangles us. What a great way to put it. Lay aside the sin that so easily entangles you. What is that sin for you? I don't know what it is for you. I know what mine is. But if I'm ever going to have discipline to finish the race, I've got to lay it aside. That sin that has me in chains, I've got to lay it aside. That weight of the world that is on my shoulders, I've got to lay it aside. I've got to look unto Jesus. And if we do that, we will see Him seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's going to take a lot of discipline. But that discipline will allow us to be partakers, as the text says, in this heavenly Jerusalem. To be the firstborn who are registered in heaven, it says. Registered in heaven. That's a far greater register I've ever want to be on. And it says we'll never be shaken. Because of our faith and our obedience that has been glued together and bonded together by discipline. Imagine that. It takes discipline to be a disciple. It takes discipline to be a disciple. And that's exactly what this book of Hebrews is trying to say tonight. I'd like to thank you for your attention. Next week we're going to conclude our study in Hebrews, the better letter, in chapter 13. We're going to conclude our study next week in 12 weeks, and then the week after that we're going to have a Thanksgiving week singing. It's going to be really great. Love to see you guys and girls there. Uh, but that's